Hello, welcome to Vlong's podcast series Keeping Pace with Therapy looking at intersectional innovations in psychotherapy. As various mental health experts as well as organizations try to understand the relationship between social identities and mental well-being of the individual, various psychological intervention strategies are being introduced or rather reintroduced keeping in mind the need to see the therapy room as a space not devoid of social context. In this podcast series, we try to look at some of the innovations in psychotherapy that are making mental health sector and therapy approaches more inclusive and sensitive to the socio-cultural realities of people. This series is hosted by Saranj Bisht and Anugraha Raman. Tune in to know more. Based on feminist theory, social psychology and literary theory, narrative therapy views people as separate from their problems. This allows users of narrative therapy to feel empowered and make the needed changes and own or disown their narratives. In this episode titled Rendezvous with Narrative Therapy Practices, we speak with Ravraj Shetty, a professional trained in narrative therapy, about how narrative therapy has played a pivotal role in diversifying psychotherapeutic spaces. and contributed to empowered narratives at the margin. Raviraj is an occupational therapist, children's book author, supervisor, library educator and a teacher who believes that all problems of this world are rooted in structural systems of oppression rather than in communities or people's bodies and identities. His work is informed by narrative practices, sensory integration, accountability practices, queer writings, children's books his mother's cooking practices and his community's ways of living hi raviraj welcome to today's episode hi saranj thank you for having me just to begin with you are currently working as a narrative therapy practitioner as well as a supervisor to those training in narrative therapy what drew you closer to narrative therapy to begin with i remember when i was sort of exploring narrative practices with society at that people are not the problem but the problem is the problem that really struck a chord with me because it really helped me to see communities and people and their bodies and minds as not the site of a problem but to examine the context that they are living in to get closer to what might be happening in their environments that is causing the distress to them and that allowed me to see people as then in a respectful manner not as a site of symptoms but a site of resistance and expertise that they already have and invited me to be more of a researcher with them rather than as the expert in the room so yeah this idea that people are not the problem but the problem is the problem and that this problem is located in the context and not in people's identities bodies or their minds really struck drew me to narrative practices a lot thank you for sharing that raviraj and we hope to also explore different tenets of narrative therapy as we go ahead all right so you also are the co-founder of narrative practices india can you tell us a little bit about the initiative how has the collective progressed over these years especially post pandemic So narrative practices india collective began in the pandemic some of us who were already practicing before and teaching narrative practices came together because we were all thinking about practices of accountability 
and how to nurture them in therapeutic spaces and off therapeutic spaces. And so the six of us, that is Jehan Zeb Baldiwala, Aditi Brahmabad, Jill Sangvi, Prathama Raghavan, and Shaman Mehrotra, we all came together to think about narrative practices and accountability work. It's been going well. We are going to complete two years in October. We're enjoying being together. We are also friends, so it's nice to work together as friends. We're doing good. Yeah, glad to know about that. You have been working with narrative practices for quite some time now. So mm-hmm. for those who haven't heard of narrative practices, can you briefly describe what it is? If I have to briefly describe narrative practices, it's like the idea that we are made of stories, that our sense of self is constructed through stories. And many of these stories are enforced on our bodies or our identities without our permission. We are playing roles in scripts that are given to us. So narrative practice is really inviting people to write their own scripts, to write their own stories, to choose which story they want to become part of their life and what stories they don't want to become part of their life. And because stories are influential, they also have real effects. So the moment people start having a sense of authorship of their own stories, They also have then a sense of control over their own life the way they want to rather than being controlled by stories that don't belong to them, that have been enforced to them. So it's really about people writing their own scripts, their own characters, choosing what supporting characters they want, who they don't want, how they want their futures to be. So really for them to rewrite their own histories and their own stories. Well, thanks to the efforts in the recent decades, therapy is not viewed as an apolitical space anymore. According to you, how can therapeutic spaces or therapists sometimes become enablers of social oppression? And how has narrative therapy acknowledged these limitations? I think the same idea that people are not the problem and the problem is the problem. I believe that for therapists too, that therapists are not the problem. But the problem is in the context in which therapists are trained. And most of these contexts in which therapists are trained are made to sound a political or where therapists are asked to keep their own politics outside the room, where therapists are asked to never acknowledge their own caste, class, religion, gender, sexuality, to say that none of this really matters. There are protocols and chairs and viewpoints that are already given to the therapist. So the therapist is not allowed to bring their own hearts and their own politics into the room. And so then automatically therapists are functioning from ideas that are being governed or controlled by certain institutions of power, like certain schools of thoughts of clinical psychology. And because the therapists are not allowed to have their own belief systems informing the practices, the belief systems that are given are many a times entrenched in patriarchy, in heteronormativity, in saying that caste doesn't exist in therapy room because there is no conversation. And so automatically then therapists recreate or these social systems of structures of oppression in therapy room too. 
this early feminist writer, Hare Mastin in the US wrote this beautiful article called Discourses in the Mirrored Room. And she really invited to think about what if the therapy room was like made of walls that were made of mirrors. So then like everything is made of mirrors. So everything that is happening in the therapy room is reflected in the room. And she interestingly said this idea that when the therapist and the client walk into the room and say the therapist is a upper caste Brahmin person and the client is a Dalit person, Dalit Bahujan person, and is talking about certain practices that are happening in their offices, place of work that are causing distress to them. But if the therapist believes that caste doesn't exist, then even if the client, this Dalit person, is telling stories which are clearly rooted in casteism at workspace, the therapist will never hear it because the therapist's belief is what is getting reflected in the mirrored room because it is the idea of the person in power in that relationship. So what narrative practices does is says we need to develop cracks in this mirrored room. We need to let the politics of the outside world inform the therapeutic practices. We need to let the caste discourse that is outside in the world come into our therapy room and let it inform what we are listening. So the whole idea of narrative practices is to engage, to believe that human experiences are political and that they're influenced by larger contexts, larger systems of power. So caste is ever present in therapeutic conversation. It's an assumption we believe and hold when we walk in the room with the client. Or that heteronormativity is always present in therapeutic rooms. So certain assumptions that are political is what is assumed as a stance when you enter in narrative practices space to make sure that we don't politicize, but make sure we are hearing the politics of that's going on already. So I would also say that it is not that therapeutic practices or therapeutic conversations are not political. It is intentionally made up politicized, even when the politics is already there. You're trained to not hear the politics. So yeah, the narrative practice is really developing cracks in these mirrored rooms of therapy as neutral spaces to invite the politics of the outside world and to say that it's not a neutral conversation and that the therapist's social location is also influencing the conversation. So yeah, that's where narrative practices comes. Given the rise in social divisiveness in recent times, how can narrative therapy play an important role to bridge gaps between diverse narratives? One of the practices that we engage is called outsider witness practices. And I particularly love that practice. Because the idea is that when somebody is telling their story, how can we witness them from a place of resonance rather than a place of confrontation? For most of us, I particularly have been raised in education systems which have just taught me to confront. So when somebody is doing a presentation, ask questions which are confronting but in ways that are judgmental or when I'm witnessing movies to teach me criticism or when I am like working with people to sort of look at them as body parts that need to be, you know, what's not functioning. But we are never taught to 
witness a story from a place of resonance. And so the outsider witness practices really invites people to become an audience to a story, but from a place of resonance. And what that does is that it invites the audience, however diverse their story might be, to find connections with the story that's being told. And then once that connection between the audience and the person who's telling the story starts building, to nurture this connection, and then we find a space to confront on what's different in our stories. So really, to bridge the gap between such social divisiveness is to first find a place of resonance on which we can stand together, that we all, for example, that we all agree that human dignity is the most important thing. And we start and we talk about human dignity first. And on the grounds of our resonance, then we start talking about what's dividing us, what's different about us. And we also don't want to say things like we can agree to disagree or that, okay, we are just two different stories. Let's just be like that. Because we also believe that stories have influence on each other and stories also work in the equation like of power. that somebody's story can be powerful and be oppressive to the other person's story. So we cannot agree to disagree. We have to talk about how your story is affecting my story and my life and my identity. That how, for example, within queer movements, we need to acknowledge how the life stories of heterosexual people or heteronormativity are affecting queer people's lives. So it's not that we can just agree to disagree and continue to coexist. We can coexist, but we also need to talk about how our stories are influencing each other. But we can only do it from a place of resonance, not from a place of like confrontation, which is not standing on a place of resonance. So narrative practices, you know, really brings in how do we create a space of resonance, of linking people's lives together around shared themes of dignity, respect, love, and then talk about what's difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how narrative practices actually work in communities which are very heterogeneous and somewhat polarized. What do you mean by heterogeneous then? So in a sense that a community where people from different religions are living together, Mm -hmm. and of course there's a concept of unity in division, but overcoming those divisive attributes, I think, is important to understand each other's narrative. So how can narrative therapy then become a really important tool when it comes to community mental health? Yeah, I will use the example of, uh, particularly the example of classrooms. I teach narrative practices. And for me, teaching is also a political act. And that a classroom is a space of politics also. And learning is not simply, you know, a clean slate based ideas. They are pretty political most of the times. In the classrooms I teach in, there are people from different religion, people from different caste, sexuality, genders. And recently something happened, which was very interesting. We were in small groups and there was a small group that was discussing about how there are certain dominant ideas about queer people. They were having conversation and I was watching the conversation. And then one person started talking about how heteronormativity and caste works together to make sure 
queerness doesn't exist or queer people feel not belonged, that caste and heterosexuality draw power and strength from each other. And there was this heterosexual upper caste person in that group who was listening to the conversation and unmuted themselves and said, I quite don't agree with that. I don't think caste and heterosexuality has to do anything or caste has to anything to do with queerness. I didn't say anything. I was waiting because before that conversation happened, they were all resonating with certain ideas about queerness that they had already figured out. This was like almost at the end that disagreement began to happen. The person who said about the caste thing, caste and sexuality being interlinked, didn't say anything. And the session conversation ended. When they were in the large room, we were reflecting and everybody was speaking. And I invited people to think about how caste, heterosexuality, patriarchy, gender binary and other systems work together and what they think. And people started reflecting, you know, how they work together. And at the end, this person who was this heterosexual Hindu Brahmin person said, oh, wow, I'm really amazed with myself and how powerful these ideas are. Because as I was listening to you and others talk, I started noticing how in my body there was a discomfort and it started shutting down the conversation. And that I was not even becoming available to this conversation about caste and sexuality. But when I started listening more carefully, why is everybody speaking? Because she also said that I had developed sense of friendship with everybody. So I was like, what is that they're trying to say? And to realize that my own privileges are not allowing me to engage with the complexity other people are telling. And my heart warmed up, like really warmed up, because this is what we are hoping for, for people to be moved in their own stories or transformed or check in with their own privileges by being witnesses to others. But it can only happen because there was friendship in the classroom already. There was a lot of intimate conversations they have had already. And so we could engage in complex conversations that would bring confrontation, but they were gentler in the way they happened. Right. Moving forward, I would like to talk about certain things that were actually important to change after the pandemic. Can you help us understand how did narrative therapy change after the pandemic? And could it provide certain tools for the practitioners so that they can better cater to communities at margin? Yeah, I think the pandemic really invited us to rethink a lot of things. But also because a lot of us, especially me and some of the others, have worked in the space of disability. Disabled children have always challenged us of a world that works and function in an ableist idea. And so when the pandemic happened, many of the things that we responded to didn't come as a surprise to us because they were things and practices we were already doing in the disabled world. But the one thing that we really focused on is the idea of linking people's lives together. The pandemic brought a significant sense of isolation and narrative practices and fear. And in isolation, fear thrives self, which then has direct effect on people's mental health and their physical health. So we really started thinking about how do we start nurturing communities and link people's lives in responding to this fear of the unknown that we know. 
don't have clue to. So we started creating support groups, which were responding in the idea of people coming together to start talking about how they are feeling, doing activities together. There used to be a leisure club for mothers that used to mothers of disabled children where they would come and play antakshari, do art and craft, teach each other cooking. We created a lot of men's, like we created this document called Jugad of caregivers of how there are th- certain things that they do that bring care to themselves. So we really started building the whole idea of how do we nurture community or communal responses to this fear of the unknown that we don't know about. So that was one way that we really responded. We yeah, made everything online, WhatsApp, used all mediums that families and children and adults were using. So that became one of our hopes to nurture community, communal responses to this fear of unknown. Right. So for many mental health professionals who wish to pursue narrative therapy practices, can you tell us a little bit about the prerequisites to train in narrative therapy, if any? I want to say there is none, (laughs) because there is none. I have taught narrative practices in community settings, in languages Marathi and Hindi, to community health workers who some of them might have never gone to school. And there are some of the amazing narrative practitioners I have met over a period of time. So what I mean to say is that there is no prerequisite to learning narrative practices. The only prerequisite I would think about is to bring your heart into the work, you know, the sense of commitment to be there for someone and a sense of commitment to question yourself and to try to unpack the many stories that have privileged us. So really, yeah, the heart to be there for people that you work with. We don't need an education certificate or how good English you speak or do you have a PhD or not, doesn't matter. The prerequisite is the heart to engage with stories. My last question to you would be that as a proponent of narrative practices, how do you envision the progress of narrative therapy in a country like India, where mainstream mental health sector is still dominated by medically oriented professionals? Is it possible for narrative therapy practices to reach non-urban spaces anytime soon? Yeah, totally. There's a group of women and youth in Dadra Nagar Haveli, which is one of the union territories in India, where the 70% population is Adivasis. And these are Adivasi women and Adivasi youth who I met in 2017. And they had invited us to think about how do they respond to what's happening in their communities, particularly increased rate in suicide mental health concerns, children dropping out of schools, young youth being abusing alcohol, and increase of rates of gendered violence. And when we started working together, we started learning narrative practices to design mental health programs, which were run by women and youth as a door-to-door services that they could give and create safe spaces for women, children, and youth to start talking about their mental health. It's been five years. I'm going again in July to start thinking about how to approach youth in different possible ways. And there are other communities that I have worked with where we have developed similar mental health or health-based, justice-based program. 
is it possible it's already happening which means that what our hope is the envision of this is that to really because the narrative practices believes that communities are the experts of their own lives to hold space where communities become in charge of their own health and their own justice where communities can express love to each other and heal and nurture each other so with dadra nagar haveli that was a classic story of how the community is taking charge of their own health and bringing justice to their own communities and figuring out practices to help each other find their ways yeah so the the envisioning is really for communities to take charge of their own health which they are already doing so how do we hold space for them and share resources for them to take charge and any impact that you can actually share with us any impact of the community engagement i recently met some of them because i'm going in july to work with the adivasi youth and the three of the youth who are there in the program who have been there for the last four years they were talking about what it meant for them to be in the program and think about their own dreams and own futures and they said that as adivasi youth nobody thinks about us we are made to feel that we are just nobodies and because of which we are also forced to not think about ourselves but having a space where we could talk about our own dreams our own hopes helped us to become community health workers and we are so proud that we are somebody today and that we are changing the lives out of own communities and we feel that we are enough in this world and we are not regressive backward adivasis as the world thinks no our culture is very very rich and we can change and help our communities to become better i remember just weeping afterwards because that is what the impact is really when people can see themselves as influential in their own lives and that of others especially those in the margins for always need to feel that they don't have any agency or power for young people to feel adivasi young people to feel that they have the power to change themselves and their own communities which they already had so yeah that was one of the impacts that i can think of but today there are like in dadranagar haveli there is door to door mental health service that is run by community health workers there is a therapy center where children and families come to see community health workers they have mapped resources so whenever there's a need for an expert they are able to facilitate you know movement between a primary healthcare center or a hospital and they are running awareness camps in response to gendered violence and health and mental health which none of it was there for years back and so all of this is an impact of the program thank you for sharing raviraj it was so great to talk to you and we hope that other listeners also got to know a lot about narrative therapy and your initiative thank you for this opportunity you can also listen to this podcast and many more conversations on intersectional inclusion by downloading plongs app another spelt u n o t h e r available on apple and google app stores to connect with intersectional experts for guest lectures or consultations check out belong circle a platform that makes it easy for a range of organizations and individuals to integrate intersectionality in their work 
Thank you for listening and stay tuned to listen to more such episodes on intersectional inclusion.